Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> it's uh, good to have you with us this morning at St. Peter's. Welcome to you, and if you're a visitor here, a special welcome to you. It's lovely to have you with us this morning. Um, we are going to be worshipping God together. Um, if you're unfamiliar with church, then hang in there and you'll become more familiar by the time we're through. But we'll be singing songs of worship, we'll be praying, reading the scriptures and preaching from God's Word uh, just in a few minutes. But uh, let's, uh, let's rise together as we sing. Um, we're going to have a song then, a call to worship, then another song. So just stay standing through that short part at the beginning. The first song is Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, fairly familiar hymn, and then afterwards Everlasting God um, uh, as our second number. So let's stand together and sing Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, to His feet thy tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, who like me His praise should sing. Let's sing these words together. to worship says this, sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. May those who delight in his righteousness shout for joy and gladness. May they always say, the Lord be exalted who delights in the well-being of his servant. Now we're going to sing Everlasting God. Mm -hmm. 
your seats. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come into your presence knowing that you are the living Almighty God, the one who is sovereign over all things, even the minutia of our own lives. And Lord, we come to you because we recognize that you are the one who is worthy of worship and praise from us. And we ask, Lord, that as we commence our service, as we bring you our songs, as we bring you our readings and prayers, that you would hear from our hearts, O God, and that you would be pleased with what you hear and what you see. Lord, the Almighty One, we ask that you will be with us and presence yourself amongst us this morning, that we might know that we have been in the presence of the living God, that we might know of the one who has transformed our lives and changed every part of our being and is bringing us to be more like his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask that by your Holy Spirit you will be here with us this morning as you have promised you would be and that you would lead us and guide us that in all things your name might be given the glory. Be with us now, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now we're going to confess our sins together and the words of the confession will appear on the screen. Let's read these words together. You asked for my hands that you might use them for your purpose. I gave them for a moment, then withdrew them, for the work was hard. You asked for my mouth to speak out against injustice. I gave you a whisper that I might not be accused. You asked for my eyes to see the pain of poverty. I closed them, for I did not want to see. You asked for my life that you might work through me. I gave a small part that I might not get too involved. Lord, forgive my calculated efforts to serve you, only when it's convenient for me to do so, only in those places where it is safe to do so, and only in those which make it easy to do so. Father, forgive me, renew me, send me out as a usable instrument that I might take seriously the meaning of your cross. Amen. An assurance of pardon. While it is true that we have sinned, it is a greater truth that we are forgiven through God's love in Jesus Christ. To all who humbly seek the mercy of God, I say, in Jesus Christ, your sin is forgiven. Amen. Amen. Now it's time for our New Testament reading, and David is going to come and read that for us. And it's Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 27. If, if you have a church Bible, it's on 1096. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. 
You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers together gather together against the Lord and against his Holy One. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Can you put this microphone on as well, please? So you've come to report after the first week of the Charleston, the Aspire three weeks. So how did it go, the camps? Uh, the camps were very good. A little exhausting, but uh, there were, I think, uh, we had 10 to 12 kids at the younger kids' camp, and 12, the older, 11 at the older kids' camp. Uh, it was great to split them up this year. We'd had them all together last year, but it really worked out really well. Uh, a number of the kids I'll let uh, Jack talk about at the older kids' camp uh, may have responded to Christ this week. Uh, younger kids, uh, there were lots of times to carry on conversations about the Lord with them. Uh, so it was a great time. That's great. Um, Jackson, so what's coming up this time, uh, this week? It's the activities week. Did you have strength, by the way? We did pray that you would uh, last the week. You look okay. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I made it through the week just fine. And uh, this upcoming week, we're going to take the kids on a bunch of activities uh, out and about in Dundee and other areas. Um, I think like go-karting, horseback riding, stuff like that. So it'll be really great to see them and get them out of Charleston and just be able to share the love of Christ with them. Great. So I take it safety is a big thing for prayer then. That's it. Yeah. A- anything else for you guys? No, I just I think uh, we just want to see kids come to Christ, and that we would be able to communicate really well by our lives while we're with them and our words, uh, the truths of the gospel, and that kids would respond. Thank you, Tom and Jackson. That's uh, a great 
Great commitment that they're doing. Now, just draw your attention to the announcements. They flick through, um, usually, there we go, that's grand, uh, after the service, before the service, um, chance to read them. One thing I want to draw your attention to, which is if you take the record, um, copies of this month's and next month's one, it's a, do a joint issue, are available. Um, that means all other copies on the stalls for previous months are free, so please take them, otherwise they go to the recycling. You'll find them out there on the, on the literature stall. Thank you. Okay. Yep. Right, boys and girls, come on down. Good morning. Morning. We got anyone upstairs? No, that's fine. Are you enjoying the summer holidays? Yes. You doing anything exciting? Yes. What? What have you done? Your dad made you a treehouse, and you're Hamish. Hamish, how could I forget you? Were you on holiday? Yeah. Where were you? You were on the island of Lewis, weren't you? Yeah. You good, good lad. And your dad made you a treehouse. That's brilliant. Anyone's dad do better than make a treehouse, eh, Tim? <laughs> your dad's taking you camping. That will be wonderful. Wish I could be with you. You went to where? Ayrshire. To see President Trump? No. No. Oh, okay. Hello, Batman. How are you? You're not Batman. Who are you? Captain Marvel, are you? Okay. Yeah. Right. Sorry. It's an American. I, uh, so you tell me. What, what have you been doing? Where are you? You're at Tayport. That's great. You guys go to really exotic places. Right, I'm going to tell you something just now, because you, you can tell me later, because it's really nice to know what you're doing on holiday. But I'm going to tell you about a boy. Let's just call him John, because that was my brother's name. Um, I'm going to tell you about a boy called John, who one day his mom came and said, I've made this cake for your brother's birthday, and it's a really special chocolate cake and on the top, it's got lots of flakes. Do you know what flakes are? Yeah. You ever have a, you ever have a chocolate? You ever have a 99? That's a, a flake. So anyhow, she said, it's for his birthday, and I'm going to leave it here, and I have to go out shopping. Don't touch it. So he's there, and he's in the kitchen, and then he's back again, and he's in the kitchen, and he's back again, and the cake's on the table, and it's got all that chocolate flakes on it. What do you think he did? Ate the chocolate flakes. He ate the chocolate. You wouldn't do that, would you? No. no. Okay. <laughs> you wouldn't eat it either. Okay. You're also good. But he wasn't. Maybe it's something genetic. He, he just, he took it, and he ate it, and then he thought, oh, what can I do? And he tried to fix it, and he put his hands on the cake to try and cover it up. But that just all left his handprints there. So then he ran away and hid under the bed. His mum came in, saw the cake. John! John! And he shouted out, I'm not here! <laughs> and she went up. Come here, John. Who's been at the cake? And he said, 
It wasn't me. She said, John, it was the devil. No, it was the devil in me. No, John, you did it. I couldn't help it. And then he started crying. He said, I couldn't help it. I didn't, I couldn't. And do you know this? In a way, he was right. It's really, really hard for a small boy to have all that chocolate in front of him and not to touch it. And you said you wouldn't do it, Hamish. Good for you. But you know, sometimes maybe you would do it. Now we're getting honest. We're getting there. Sometimes, okay, guys, sometimes we know that something's bad and we do it, and we know that something's good and we don't do it. And you know what? Even when you're very, very little, you need help. And we're going to be looking later, when you're at Sunday school, we're going to be looking at all the grown-ups who have the same problem. I have that problem as well. There's some good things I know I should do and I don't do, and sometimes there's bad things I do that I shouldn't do because we have sin within us, and we need God to help us. That's it. Only Jesus is good. And so who do we ask to help us? Jesus. Yeah, exactly. And do you think he would help us? Yeah. Yeah, of course. He will. And that's why we ask him. Sometimes we're so daft we don't even think to ask. So that's the thing to do. So what we're going to do just now is we're going to say a prayer. So put your hands together and close your eyes and I'll say the prayer. And at the end you can say amen. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we, we admit that we often do things that are wrong And even the good things you ask us to do, we try and we can't do them. And so we come and we ask for your help. We ask you to forgive us. And we ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might believe and trust you for you alone are good. Be with us and bless each child here. And bless those who are on holiday elsewhere. In your name, amen. Great to see you guys. You have a sorbet on your knee. I've got a sorbet on my knee. We'll compare wounds later, okay? Thank you. Yeah. Your treehouse is high. It's great. Now we're going to sing again. Um, Man of Sorrows is one of the Hillsong worship songs. And during the singing of this, we're going to take up uh, the offering. And so the stewards can be ready uh, for that. Let's stand together and sing uh, the song, Man of Sorrows.
take our seats. Sheena is going to come and bring us our Old Testament reading, and it's from Psalm 104, verses 1 to 18. Psalm 104. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes wind his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with a deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nest, the stork has its home in the pine trees. The high mountains belong to the wild goats, the crags are a refuge for the cronies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sheena. Now we're going to sing part of that psalm before David comes and preaches to us. So let's sing uh, Psalm 104, verses 1 to 9. And uh, Colin's going to come and lead us in that. Let's stand together as we sing. Praise the Lord, my soul.
Please be seated. Now I, I have to welcome, you can smile Amy, yes I'm going to, I have to welcome the two newest members of our congregation, that is Caris Grace and uh, Petros Peter. Uh, John and I both felt that you needed to have both Greek names there, so Peter and Caris, uh, congratulations to you both, and Amy you look as fit as could be, well done. We welcome you uh, and we welcome these two young babies. Welcome again to any of you who are visiting with us. Um, we're going to look at Romans chapter 7 in a moment. We've been looking through Romans and we're just going to continue with that. Uh, if you're around this evening, we're going to look at the book of Philemon, which is uh, a, a really important book for understanding uh, what the Bible actually teaches about slavery and one of the big accusations that's often brought against uh, the Bible and the Christian faith is that it supports slavery, which it doesn't, but you'll I'll come along this evening and you'll, you'll hear that. Um, Romans 7 verse 14 onwards, I'm not going to read, it's, it's good if you can take some time to read the early bit of the chapter, but we're going to read from verse 14, page 1134. It is uh, one of the most contested parts of the Bible in terms of understanding, and uh, you'll see why. I, I love it because it's a bit of a, a tongue twister as well, but also because it speaks deeply to many of us, our personal experience. So it's on page 1134, Romans 7, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. For what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Now, uh, I'm looking out, and obviously he's not here. Uh, I'd invited President Donald Trump to come to the service this morning. Um, it, it's interesting the reactions from people when I did that, because uh, I actually had people write to me and say, what are you doing? That man is evil. Would you welcome him to your church? And I wrote back and said, yes. What, do you welcome anyone? Yes. We do. We welcome anyone. And here's why. Because actually the message we're going to look at this morning would apply to Donald Trump. It applies to me. It applies to everyone. 
Ironically, in our culture, which is very, very good at people telling themselves how good they are compared to them over there, and we can do that in the church as well, if you grasp what the Bible says, then you realize you can never put yourself in the category of the good as compared to the people who are bad over there. And in our culture, our culture is becoming increasingly intolerant because if you sin, inverted commas, in, in terms of what the culture perceives as sin, you're finished forever. So, for example, um, there is a, a Labour MP who tweeted some things 10 years ago that were really, really awful, and he was found out last year, and people were trolled back through his stuff, and he was fired. And he's come back into the party, he's been repentant, he's apologized, he's excused it in different ways. But he's had to give up because once it's on the internet, that's it. You're doomed forever. Now here's the problem for all of us. Never mind, maybe you're not on social media and that would be very wise. But if God was to come and to display every single one of your thoughts and every single one of your deeds before us, None of us would speak to each other because all of us have this problem within us. So we're going to look at this. We're going to look at it from a perspective of, uh, I, I hope you will recognize yourself in this, that you've been in a position where you want to do something, but you find yourself unable to do it. Because what Paul is doing here is very interesting. From verse 14 onwards, he, he, he makes it incredibly personal. There's no doubt that this is Paul's personal testimony. And he, he's very strong and explicit in his language. And that's part of the problem here because what is he speaking about? Is he speaking about himself before he became a Christian or as a Christian now? When he says, I'm sold as a slave to sin or a prisoner of the law of sin, that doesn't sound like a Christian, especially since in the previous chapter, in chapter 6, verse 22, he says we've been set free from sin. But if he's not describing a Christian, how can he be a slave to God's law? Is he just talking about the law of Moses? His desire as a Jew to obey the law being defeated by his inability to perform it. But Paul also talks about himself as being unspiritual. It's funny, interesting, again, in our culture, everyone wants to say, people are, I'm really into spirituality, into being spiritual. Um, I get sent a lot of stuff, as you can imagine, and I don't necessarily read all of it. But someone said, this will change your life. So I looked at this YouTube clip of a, an Irish lady, I've even forgotten her name, which is probably just as well, because I wouldn't recommend her at all. I think she's called Laura. Um, and she's talking about her interaction with angels. Her book has been number one in the Sunday Times bestsellers list. And she's got this lovely, sweet, southern Irish voice. And she speaks absolute guff. And it's just awful. I mean, she said, I see, well, I'm not going to mimic the action. She said, I see the angels with the wings around you. And your angels are telling me this. And you're and she's thinking, where are, you, where are you getting this from? But people love this stuff. They lap it up. It really is quite extraordinary. In our culture, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Paul says, I'm a Christian and I'm unspiritual. Does an unbeliever recognize their sin? I don't think so. Does an unbeliever recognize God's law as good? 
In chapter 8 and verse 7, I think for me this is the clincher in the whole argument, Paul says the sinful mind is opposed to God's law. doesn't delight God's law, but is opposed to God's law. It's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And yet here he speaks about his mind as delighting in God's law. Does an unbeliever have the kind of conflict within that, that a desire to do what God wants, but an inability to do it? Is this speaking about a believer? Is it speaking about an unbeliever? Now, it may be that it's not just quite as simple as that. I've always read it as speaking about a believer because I know it's my own experience. But in studying it over this past week or so, I think I've come to a somewhat different understanding and I hope you you will see why because actually just simply saying this is an unbeliever who wants to obey God's law that's not satisfactory but simply saying this is the normal condition of a believer is not satisfactory either Lloyd-Jones recognizing that speaks of this as being a people under conviction of sin in a time of revival but to me that wouldn't make sense to the Romans I like Uh, very helped indeed by John Stott, who is talking about maybe it's a backslidden Christian who doesn't know much about the Spirit. And I think there's a great deal to be said for that, because in Romans chapter 7, the Spirit is only mentioned once. In Romans chapter 8, the Spirit is mentioned 21 times. And it may be that what this is doing is talking about believers who love the law, who love God's Word, and who have a love for Jesus, but are not living as Christians in liberty and joy because of the lack of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not talking here about Holy Spirit baptism. We're not talking about here about a second blessing. We're talking about normal Christian living. And that's why if you read Romans 7, you have to read it together with Romans 8, and, and we will go on to do that. But Paul, before he goes to Romans 8, wants to identify the problem again. So we're going to do that, and we'll just do it this way. Verses 14 to 20 answers the question, how spiritual am I? Are you a spiritual person? What, does a, what is a spiritual person like? Uh, the lady who... Um, talks to angels all the times and sees people's angels around them. And by the way, you've got your own personal angel who will always love you no matter what you do and will always protect you no matter whatever happens to you. Um, Really, I mean, the people were lapping this up and I'm listening to her talking this rubbish and it's very, very convincing because she's so sweet and she's so nice and she just seems so spiritual because there's that aura around her and people go, oh, she's a bit flaky, but that's because she's spiritual. Well, spiritual's not flaky. And spiritual is not miserable, and spiritual is not walking around in a dream all the time. What does it mean to be spiritual? Well, again, of course that's tied in with the Holy Spirit, it's tied in with us being alive in Christ. But what Paul does here is he, he talks about being unspiritual. So you look at verse 14, we know the law is spiritual. So he's saying, actually, the law is spiritual. He's just, it seems like a paradox, he's just said... That we, we live in the new way of the spirit, not the old way of the written code. And now he's saying the written code is actually spiritual. It comes from God. It comes from the Holy Spirit. But he says, my problem is that I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. How does that work? 
Let's just go through these verses and just note what, what is said. Unspiritual has this idea of fleshly. Now, it doesn't mean that your body is bad and your spirit is good. It's a principle within us that means that we will instinctively be drawn to things that are bad. And there's stuff within us that in, within, within the depths of our hearts will come out. So you, can, you, for example, can give the impression of being very saintly. You never say a crossword. You never say anything bad. You're always placid. You're always at peace. You can do the kind of Zen meditation thing. You can zone out. And yet, when God really gets into your life, right into your heart, sometimes what comes out of that is utterly astonishing, even to you. And Paul recognizes that. He said, I am sold as a slave to sin. Verse 15, he talks about his contrary behavior. I don't understand what I do. It's Calvin who says the two hardest things to know in the world are God and yourself. I don't understand my own behavior. Have you ever had that experience? Why did I do that? Why did I behave like that? What is wrong with me? You know that um, Robbie Burns thing about, oh, that God would give us the gift to see ourselves as others see us. Well, sometimes when we do get that gift, but, oh my goodness, what is wrong with me? Do you, ever, do you ever feel that? Do you ever look into the mirror maybe of God's word and you think, what's wrong with me? I don't understand myself. I don't understand why I behave in the way I do. Maybe I need therapy. Maybe I need to go and get a counselor. And maybe you do. But maybe we need to wake up to who we really are. Paul's saying, I'm hypocritical. There's a divided eye, if you like. And some people recognize in here both Latin, uh, Roman, and Greek writers. So Horace, for example, says, I pursue the things that have done me harm. I shun the things I believe will do me good. Now, let me give you an extreme example of that. Think of a woman who was badly, badly beaten by her husband. Absolutely appalling behavior for which he went to jail and he should have gone to jail. And she carried on with her life. She ended up marrying somebody who did exactly the same. Now, why did she do that? When you sit and talk with her, she said, well, I, I, I knew it was wrong. I don't know why I did it. Maybe I just deserve it. And there's a whole bunch of confusion that comes in. Ovid says this, I see and approve the better course, but I follow the worse one. So, you can again give an extreme example, but you can all find examples, I think, in your own life. I think of a man who stands up and preaches God's word and then goes out and does exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. And he knows. He doesn't have the, the, the excuse of saying he doesn't know. When he preaches it, he believes it. And yet, he goes and does the very, very opposite. Why? I don't understand what I do. What I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Now, maybe you're not a divided person in that way, or maybe you're just not aware. Um, but many of us, we've, we've found that within us at times. Look at verse 16. I affirm the law. If I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. He's saying, I, I agree it's not good. I agree the law is good. I agree that what I'm doing is not good. And then he says, it's the sin living in me. Verse 17, it's no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. 
And that's not him saying, it's not me. What he's saying is sin has so taken hold of me that it's become very part of my nature that even if I, in, in my mind I'm saying, yes, I want to do what God says, but in my, in my nature I find myself doing that thing that I know that is wrong. Like the alcoholic who knows if they take just one drink, they're going to take two, they're going to take three, they're going to take four, and they're going to end up harming themselves or harming someone else, yet they still do it. You can, again, that's an extreme example, but you can take smaller examples of that. We just know that if we do it, it's wrong and that it's going to do harm, and yet we still do it. Why? Why do we do that? In, in the world in which we live, most people say, well, if you tell human beings that something's bad, they're not going to do it because human beings are rational beings. No, we're not. We're not rational beings. At least, we don't often act on our rationality. And verse 18, he explains it a bit more. He says, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out he's not saying there's no good at all but he's saying that everything that is good within human beings is tainted with evil there's something in humanity even in regenerate humanity even in christians which objects to god and seeks to be independent of him which has that kind of childish reaction why should i do that why should i behave like that i'm weak he says And that's, again, I think many of us can identify with that. So verse 19, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. I do evil. I keep on doing it. One day you lose your temper and you shout, you yell, maybe you swear, maybe you don't swear. You might even be violent. I will never, ever, ever do that again, you say. You see the horror on the faces of the people that you're being abusive to. And yet, it happens again, although you know that it's wrong. Maybe you've gone online or whatever and you've, you've seen pornography and you, you feel disgusted at yourself. I'll never do it again. But you do. Maybe you've cheated at work. Maybe you've lied almost instinctively. You've been asked, have you done this? And you go, yes, I did it. And then you, you, one lie automatically follows another. And you go home and you think, right, Lord, I'm never, ever going to do that again. And yet you do. You know it's wrong. There's just a, uh, you know, sometimes it's just, it causes you to absolute despair, which is what seems Paul does here. And that's why he says in verse 20, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. He's saying, I'm, I've got this understanding about God's word and God's law and who Jesus is and so on. I've got this, but there's sin living in me that means that I just keep coming up against this barrier. I just keep making excuses. I keep finding myself doing the things I don't want to do and not doing the things that I want to do. And so what is my problem? And he he sums it up in this way. I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law at sin at work within me. He's saying there's a wrong principle at work in our lives. There's an emphasis in the Greek, which if you transliterated it literally, it'd be, when in me there is a desire to do good, then besides me, evil is close at hand. 
So I want to do good. And it's at that very time that evil is close at hand. You, you understand that in different ways. I think um, uh, if, if your desire is to do evil, the devil pretty well leaves you alone and lets you get on with it. But if your desire is to do good, you will find all kinds of things happening. I, I'll just say this personally. Sometimes, you know, often you preach and you're not aware of anything particular, anything happening. And then, but occasionally... Uh, you preach and you go, wow, the Lord was really with us there. And you really feel it. And I'm not saying that God doesn't use the other things. I'm not saying that how you feel is, is determinative of how good the sermon is. But sometimes you feel that. And it's at that point that you realize, be very, very careful over the next 24 hours. Because you could trip yourself up. You could preach this most wonderful sermon and then be the most irritable person. Or many, many, many different things. There's a wrong principle at work. The evil and the good are present together. And that really is the point. And that's why um, I said what I said about welcoming Donald Trump. Because to people who were marching against him, he's like the personification of evil. I mean, it's so bizarre that people carry signs that say love Trump's hate. And at the same time, they carry signs, which I, I can't repeat here, which are full of hatred against a person. How, how, does, that, how does that even work in people's heads and then they say well look he, he's bad at this and he's bad at that and he's bad and he, and he almost certainly is but I think as a Christian it's very difficult for me to be in any kind of position of judgment to look on someone else's heart when my own like Paul says I am the chief of sinners I mean, the one thing you can say about Donald Trump, he's not very good at covering up his evil. You know, lots of other people are. Oh, he's a politician who tells lies. Yeah, try and find me one who doesn't. And not just politicians. Deceit is within the human heart. The law of God, says Paul, is in my heart. And there's the law of my mind. There's the law of unrighteousness. There's the law within my flesh. And so he describes a conflict You see that, this war that goes on, being made a prisoner of sin. So we sing from Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. And we sing it, and we go out, and within a couple of hours, we're breaking God's law. How can you say you love the law, and yet then go and break it? And Paul's answer, and the point of the whole passage is, I am sold as a slave to sin. Now again, there are those who'd say, well, that cannot be for the Christian, but it is for the Christian. You know it, and I know it. I think that um, for the non-Christian, it is the case as well, especially for those who try to be religious or try to be good, that sometimes don't even see their own problem. But for the Christian, it is a difficulty. And for those who have ever experienced this, Those who realize that they are unspiritual. Those who realize that they delight in God's law. They love singing God's word. They love being with God's people. They remember committing their life to Jesus. And yet, they read this and it so rings true. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. It's like... New Year's resolutions. 
New Year's resolutions, I used to do this all the time. New Year would come and I would write down, I mean, Jonathan Edwards, I can't remember, had 95 resolutions or something. Craig will know, he's much more theological than me. Um, He had a whole bunch of resolutions that he wrote down, his 95 things, and even to read them pains me. But I I used to think, okay, he had 95 or whatever, I'll I'll have 20. So every new year I would write down 20 things that I wasn't going to do anymore and that I was going to do, and 10 negative, 10 positive. And come January, I gave up. Because, well, saying come January, the end of January, usually the first week in January, you'd give up with a lot of them. It's like someone, you know, who says, right, new year, I'm going to get fit. New year, I'm going to go on a diet. New year, I'm going to go to the gym. And gym membership booms the first two weeks in January. And gym membership collapses the first week in February. Because he's, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And a lot of us live our Christian life like that. Okay, yeah, I heard what you're saying. I hear it. I heard it from the pulpit. I'm walking out this door, and I'm going to live a new life in Jesus. And next Sunday, we don't even want to go to church because we've screwed up again. So that's why you get this just astonishing cry. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? That... That's present. Paul doesn't say what a wretched man I was. He says what a wretched man I am. And and later on when he writes to Timothy, he's going to say towards the end of his life, I am the chief of sinners. There's a despair there. There's a desire to be freed from this. Do you know one of the hardest things for a Christian to imagine, a real Christian to imagine, about heaven is being free from sin. That's one of the hardest things to grasp because we're so used to it. It's almost impossible to conceive of that. And so there's, there's this despair, and that's why this is a cry of a real Christian. It's somebody who's saying, I, I want to be free. It's an inward groaning. Look at uh, eight, across in chapter 8 and verse 23, and I think the whole of chapter 8 is an answer to this. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And across in chapter 7, he's been saying, my body, when I, when I want to do this, I find myself instinctively going another direction. And so I groan. And in Romans 8, Paul says, I groan, I groan. We groan as we, we long to be freed. I think it's Stott who says that the more we advance spiritually, the more clearly we see the high standard God sets for his people and the more deeply we deplore the extent of our shortcoming. That's why a proud Christian is such an oxymoron, such a contradiction. Because as you grow in grace, you become more conscious of sin. And it has to make you more humble. You cannot boast about yourself. And so it would seem that the Christian life is one of, to be honest, quite miserable despair. Whereas in our culture, it may be an illusion, but we're told you can be whatever you want to be, you can do whatever you want to do, we can make laws and people will obey them and everything will be fine. In, that's an illusion, but is that not better than being taught, well, here are the laws, but you can't obey them, and the more you know them, the more you kind of react against them. And it would be, you would be wretched except for this. 
Thanks be to God who delivers us through, delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. And we go into chapter 8. There's now no condemnation. That therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So here is the remarkable and the wonderful thing. God delivers us. Paul says, who's going to deliver me? Who's going to rescue me? And the world says, do this and you'll be fine. Accept this and you'll be fine. And religion says, do this and you'll be fine. Try harder. Be more spiritual. Fast more. Read more. Pray more. Do more good. And Paul writes in this wonderful letter to the Romans, he says, no, you can't do it. You can't, you can't, you can't. But Jesus has done it. And he he keeps coming back to this. Thanks be to God, he delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here, I think the deliverance is for Christians. It's renewal. So we go into chapter 8, and we're going to, um, we will go into chapter 8, and it's, for me, Romans chapter 8 is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible, and I was thinking about how we divide it up, and I was thinking, you know, it's a bit like having a really, really, really special dish at a meal. You eat it very slow. It has to be really special for me to eat it slowly because I'm a wolfer. You know, get it down before it disappears or before someone else gets it. Um, it's just instinctive. It's sin within. But something that's really, really, it has to be outstandingly special for me to go, I'm just taking this one slow bite at a time. Well, that's what Romans 8 is like, and we'll see how we get on with it. Because I think the answer that's given in Romans 8 is just is just utterly astounding. This is the depth of the problem here. And I think it's summarized by Paul in two other places. 2 Corinthians 4.16, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that was your experience? Inwardly you're renewed. You know how you feel just now? You're tired, you're weary, you're fed up, you're struggling. You're hardly coping with things. And, but imagine if you had that inward renewal. And Colossians 3.10, you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of its creator. In every Christian, there's this divided eye. There's the old self and the new self. And what Paul is speaking about here is how far too often the old self predominates in the Christian life. And what we need is the the spirit-filled liberty and freedom of Romans chapter 8. I hear Christians a lot talk about we need to be filled with the spirit. Well, you do, but not so that you can speak in tongues, not so that you can work miracles, not so that you can heal, even though it would be wonderful if that was the case. But you need God's Holy Spirit so you can be freed from yourself, so that your heart can be free, so that you can be renewed. What is the answer to who's going to rescue me? The answer is Jesus Christ. He delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that comes back to when you are a Christian, your daily life is one of repentance and renewal. I love coming to church, not because I get to stand up and speak usually or preach. I love coming to church for different reasons. One is it's just great being with God's people. It's great hearing God's word. It's great singing God's praise. But overall, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. It's great because it's you come and you are renewed spiritually. 
John Stott says this about this whole passage. In the old order, we were married to the law and controlled by the flesh, and we bore fruit for death. Whereas as members of the new order, we're married to the risen Christ and liberated from the law, and we bear fruit for God. But it doesn't stop there. We need then to keep a watch on ourselves and others, lest we should ever slip back from the new order into the old, from a person to a system, from freedom to slavery, from the indwelling spirit to an external code, from Christ to the law. God's purpose is that we should be New Testament Christians who, having died and risen with Christ, are living in the freedom of the indwelling spirit. Now, if that's your experience, hallelujah. And you will be a rich, rich blessing to many, many people. I don't think that is what the Romans 7, 14 onwards person is being described at. The Romans 14 person, I don't think either is a non-Christian. I think a non-Christian will become convicted of sin and needs to be delivered by Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you need to know that there's no hope for you out with Jesus Christ. But the Romans 7.14 describes many of us as Christians who have just settled into a pattern of being spiritually defeated. And we are in a warfare. We are in a battle. And we should not be satisfied with that. When you two wrote their song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. There were people who criticized it, saying, well, a Christian, of course a Christian's found what they're looking for. Well, I actually think that they got something really right in that song, especially when they juxtapositioned it with a gospel song. And I think it is this, that many of us are, as Christians are just too satisfied. We call it struggle, but we're not really struggling. It's really defeat. We're too satisfied with defeat. Now it may be that you will be somebody like William Cowper, the poet, hymn writer, who genuinely suffered from real depression and all his life, God brought out of that the most wonderful things, but he went through valleys and depths that I hope most of us will never go through. But it may be that you are like that, and yet even in that, you can know real peace and real joy. But I think most of us probably are not like Cowper, And we're not like Horatius Boner, who could write, there's never been a day when I didn't know the presence of the Lord in my life. Most of us are not like that either. We're pretty well in between those two things. All Christians are different. But surely all of us who are Christians can recognize this, that we delight in God's law. We acquiesce, we agree with it. But so often we are defeated by our own sin. And that's why we need to be alert, as Stott says. That's why we need to constantly preach the gospel to ourselves. That's why we need to have fellowship with one another. That's why we need prayer. And most of all, I think, it's why we need the Spirit at work in our lives. Now, if it wasn't for the fact that you need physical food as well as spiritual food, I'd love to go straight into Romans 8, but we won't. Uh, We shall leave that until next week. But just take that verse in verse 24, verse 25 rather, 
Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The, the remainder of the verse, by the way, is him just a summary of where he's at before he goes into <clears throat> Romans 8. I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. It is possible to be delivered. It is possible to have a better Christian life. It is possible to grow and to know so much more than we already experience. And God grant that we will do so. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for the uh, reality of it. So many of us can identify with Paul. We don't understand how we hear your word and we delight in it. And yet, those of us who've been on the road for quite a while know that we, we can't even promise anything because we know what our past experience has been. And yet grant, O oh God, that we would be being renewed inwardly every day. And grant that we would be filled with your Spirit. And grant that we would not quench your Spirit. And grant that we would have the freedom of those who know they are forgiven. And who love you and love your law. And who desire to serve in humility and with grace. Lord, we know that such humility and grace, for that to happen, we need to be cut deep, and you will cut us deep. But we bless you for the healing balm of the Spirit. We bless you for the beauty and the glory of Jesus, and we bless you that you are our good Father who doesn't give us anything that's evil or bad, which ultimately does not work for our good. So help us to trust you. And to trust you in such a way that we stop taking on things for ourselves. We stop trying to control everything, even our own sin. And instead, we look to you. And bless any here who as yet do not know you, that they may come to you. And that they may see the beauty and the wonder of Jesus, who delivers and frees from all sin. In your name, amen. We're going to sing the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And as we sing that, reflect on the fact that that is what we have to do. We have to look away from ourselves and look to Christ. Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. Let's stand and sing, and please remain standing for the benediction.
Now to you, from him who is and who was and who is to come, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, may grace and peace abound. Amen.